0: Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? Looks like meat. Back on the menu, boys! I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Gollum Song, where we wrap up our coverage of The Two Towers. I can't believe we're actually two-thirds of the way there. (laughs) Holy shit. Our spoiler warning, while The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we'll also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So a quick update on our schedule as we are wrapping down the two towers officially for ever, I guess. (laughs) Um... (laughs) What we are going to do is take a little break from Tolkien. Our weekly coverage is going to pivot over to Secession. Um, Our Evenstar Royco coverage, as Emily has so perfectly dubbed. Um, So we will be trying to record weekly episodes about the most recent episode of Secession. This is the final season, the fourth and final season. Um, it'll be kind of looser, kind of more of a hangout episode where we just kind of yell into a mic and hopefully have some fun shit to yell about with Tom and Greg and all the <laughs> wonderful Roy Roy kiddos. Uh, so... Um, That will be a little bit of a break. That means we will be starting Return of the King closer to uh, June or at some point in the summer. Um, But during that time, we hope to also get out some Tolkien and Lord of the Rings episodes, both on the public feed and on the Patreon. Um, Those include talking about Aragorn. We're finally going to do our deep character dive into Aragorn, (laughs) which Emily has zero takes about. Uh, we have none at all. Uh, we do want to talk about what a workshop, um, because we came up with some interesting stuff in our uh, research of the two towers that probably warrants uh, its own episode, and maybe some other kind of one off episodes to kind of fill the time, uh, keep you plugged into the world of Tolkien and the world of Manu and Emily. Um, but we also are really, really looking forward to covering secession. And on that note, I would also like to say if you've enjoyed our coverage two thirds of the way through the Lord of the Rings films, um, also covering Andor and our future secession coverage, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you check out uh, our Patreon at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get early access to episodes, uh, bonus content, bonus episodes, and generally just make things easier for me and Emily allow these episodes to come out uh, on a regular basis and all that good stuff. Once was light, now darkness falls, where once was love, love is no more, don't say. Drive. As with our fellowship wrap-up, we'll start today by talking about the end credits song for Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. We've named our wrap-up episodes after the final track of each film, which is really appropriate in every way, because this film is Gollum Song. The song itself is performed by Icelandic singer Emiliano Torini, Uh, it's composed by Howard Shore and Torini, with lyrics by Fran Walsh. The song was originally going to be given to Bjork, but she was unable to do so. So <laughs> the first thing I wanted to say is, do you have any familiar with em- Emiliana Torini, Emily?
1: I do. Um, so I... So, okay, so like the necessary context to this is I didn't watch The Lord of the Rings until I was like 19 years old, um, but I listened to her album, Me and Armini, for all of my high school years, and all of my high school years. Um, one of her songs, Big Jumps, was like... I think the song that was my alarm clock for all four years of high school um and um and and so like i loved her I, I always loved her stuff um and i remember getting through two towers for the first time and being like god where do i like why do i know that song where do i know that from why is that so recognizable i'd like convinced myself she was like some like local singer or something and i'm like that's my, what must have been what it was and then it like hit me a couple weeks after i'd seen it for the first time i was like oh my god that's ameliana torrini like holy shit um so yeah i I'm, like very familiar with her but not at all for the lord of the ring stuff entirely for her like late stage (laughs) albums which is possibly the saddest like view of the 2000s (laughs) i think to to ever have
0: (laughs) oh no that's great um So I didn't really know much of her until about last year when we were doing our fellowship wrap-up episode. Uh, I think I got super Enya-pilled when we were coming up on our final (laughs) fellowship episode, uh, doing our research for May It Be. But then I was also like, hey, Google, play Enya for like four weeks in a row when I was going to bed. Um, So a bunch of Enya songs like dominated my Spotify wrapped. Um, But I think it was in the process of editing that episode that our sound editor, DJ Empirical, aka Ethraglier and Drethion, said (laughs) you should also check out uh, Emiliana's work because he knew we would eventually come to this song in our Two Towers coverage. Um, So I started giving her a listen, but I suck at music these days. So giving her a listen means I just say put it on on Spotify and I kind of just do other stuff, whether it's reading or cleaning my chores. So I don't like sit there and really like sink in song and album that well anymore. Um, But I I really like her. And so she's a very regular in my, hey, Spotify play, uh, Emiliana Torini. Like that's become a common refrain in this household. So um, things I've thought in the last year of listening to her is I definitely think she should be given a Bond song. Um, I think she would be great for that. I would really appreciate that. Um, And she also has a really dope cover of White Rabbit, um, the old Jefferson airplane starship one of those
1: airplane Uh, i think if if
0: you've seen the matrix you know the song i guess uh but uh yeah so i thought (laughs) that cover is really dope but i really like her music from what little i know of it or at least i'm able to name of it from her discography
1: yeah well she kind of represents like the there was a brief period i think it is like the kind of bjork period where like iceland was about to become really trendy um, and I think I think in some ways, like, they lost out on that because the crash hit and they basically survived it and the rest of us just got absolutely obliterated. The 2008 crash, that is. Um, and, and I think that kind of lost them their chance to be, like, really cool um, in the way that, like, you know, the Nordics are now with, like, their Nordic noir shit. Um, but she was kind of in there. And, and, and I think, like, it's kind of funny that so much of the lord of the rings films kind of presaged like what would become big in the 2000s and the 2010s and and i always just feel like so sad that that she was just one of the things that never quite made it, because I think of all of the things, she is definitely the one that deserved to make it, deserved to have, like, a much kind of bigger uh, career than I think she's really ended up having. Not to say that she hasn't had a really fantastic and impressive career, but I feel like she should be a household name and, like, hasn't really ended up quite at that status.
0: Uh, when did that, like, big volcano eruption happen in Iceland? That was in the last, like, 15 years, right?
1: Eleven, I think. Yeah, because I think... God, I remember playing, I was playing like an ice hockey game when the worst of it happened. My dad was trying to fly back. Oh, my dad was trying to fly back. So yeah, it must have been 2011 because my dad was trying to fly back from his father's funeral in Yakima, Washington <laughs> to London where we were living at the time. And I remember like on my little BlackBerry while I was playing ice hockey up in the north of um, north of uh, London trying to figure out how the fuck to read those place names. So it was like I, uh Fiala for volcano i think that's it and i just remember like all of us huddled around that blackberry trying to be like what how the fuck do we do this how are we gonna do this we're like 11 years old that is not a word that any of us like those are not a combination of letters that have ever worked um and i suspect maybe that's it maybe that's why iceland never quite made it that fucking volcano ruined it for them yeah i
0: wonder if that kind of i mean it definitely kind of re probably focused attentions um, in different directions. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, everyone's like, all right, we're, we're into Norway now because they don't have any massive <laughs> mountains that could kill us. Uh, that we know of, that we know of.
0: Yet. <laughs> Oh, God, now I just had the cursed thought of uh, combining the Iceland volcano to how Mordor was created in the Rings of Power show. I was literally just
1: thinking that, and I was like, God, that would have been fucking horrific. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they
0: oh, have a little cryon that uh, Benjamin Stark points up to that just says Iceland <laughs> at the end of it. Oh, God.
1: Iceland replaced Fireland. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God, uh, we normally don't joke about natural disasters. I'm so sorry.
1: I think they're funny, and I I think all natural disasters are funny. And if uh, I suddenly die in one right now because I'm being smited for my hubris, like a fucking Greek tragic figure, um, I think that would be great banter. Um, and I'm not at all now nervous and about to burn some sage to get rid of the bad vibes I brought upon this house.
0: No, we'll we'll go down together. I am also team tectonic plate, so um, whatever they do, <laughs> they, uh, they can do no wrong in my eyes. Jesus. Okay, where were we? Okay. (laughs) Gollum song. All right. Uh, The song itself builds off the leitmotif for Gollum. Haha, makes sense. Uh, Which is known as the pity of Gollum, which is a series of escalating minor chords and works in the opposite direction of the fellowship leitmotif.
1: Oh my for god. For the fellowship, Howard Shore, man, what a guy.
0: <laughs> for the fellowship theme, the third and the sixth of a root D major key are are made major to give that kind of rising triumphant feeling. You can really go on an adventure to. Gollum's theme, starting in A minor, uses minor chords for its third and sixth to create the sense of foreboding or the corruption of Gollum. Gollum's song starts with a boy's choir humming the pity of Gollum, then elaborates on it by moving down a half-step from the fifth. From the fifth, sorry. According to Shore, this effect is so that the writing seems solid, but it's always unstable. It's a searching piece, just like Gollum is always searching for the ring. The lyrics are from the point of view of Gollum, which is meant to capture his shifting personas. The first verse and chorus engender sympathy and pity for Gollum, while the latter half is more defiant, even vengeful. It's a stark contrast to May It Be and Into the West, which are more hopeful, angelic, lofty, and include elvish languages in them. This song is straightforward words that Gollum will understand, i.e., no mention of taters. <laughs>
1: I think that's also kind of interesting um like the fact that i, I mean i think that i are maybe maybe i'm getting ahead of putting the horse ahead, or the cart ahead of the horse here but like i feel like our, our kind of thesis of our coverage so far has been like the main character of the two towers is Gollum, um and i think they like the fact that the there's this like increased kind of prosaicness to the the lyrics of the the kind of capstone song, um, is just this perfect summation of the movie because like though the movie itself represents like um like an enlargement of the world um as we know it in, in in um or as we are introduced to it in Fellowship of the Ring, like in a lot of ways it becomes enormously less magical. Um, so like when the world opens up for the first couple times in fellowship first at weathertop and then at rivendell and then again at moria and there's a really kind of keen sense of magic running through all of it and and it, there's very like there is a sense that the world is big in ways that cannot possibly be like fully comprehended and then the Two Towers really blows out the sort of walls on oh god, why did I say it like that? Uh really makes the like <coughs> uh makes the world just seem so much more massive than it than it feels in fellowship, but there's no magic left in it really. I mean, we see possibly more magic in, in the two towers than we do in fellowship, but it just feels you know, kind of wrung dry and and no character I think is represents being rung dry of magic quite like gollum does and so for there to be no quenya um it'd just be straight short like nine monosyllabic english um is is I think in so many ways, and I don't mean this in like a derogatory way, but that like is what the Two Towers is.
0: Yeah, I'm now uh, coming up with the unhinged take that the Two Towers is the most working class of the three uh, Lord of the Rings films. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the, yeah, this is this is uh, the most proletariat of the uh, ending songs. Uh, the, all the Elvish and all that stuff—that's for like the bourgeoisie. Um, Quenya yeah, is the language of em. the bourgeois, so. um yeah, no, I just think it's a, yes, I agree. It's a pretty dope song. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add this to the reasons the Two Towers is my favorite movie is because it is now the most working class of them, almost entirely because of the song. <laughs> but I think you're right. Just like Gollum is rung dry, like. I would say the ants are the most magical part of the two towers to me, but even they are like yeah. literally on their last limb. Um, I guess no pun intended there. But like, you know, th- their forest <laughs> is being decimated. We've already talked about how it's a shell of what it used to be in ages past. Um, and then this is kind of like their last thing that they're really gonna do. The you know, possibly. Uh we don't really know what happens with the ants afterwards, or I don't. Don't spoil it for me, Emily. Yeah. Um <laughs> So, but it does feel like that kind of rung dry feeling, or these are the last gasps of it, um, and I feel mm-hmm. like that really works, especially with the song.
1: Yeah, and and I think also like if you look at the kind of like loftiness of of the, uh, both of the other songs, actually, um, it, it is really a kind of um, eagle eye, if you will, view of the world and of the narrative. Whereas like Gollum's song is so visceral like Gollum is a raw nerve um in oh, in, in, in the, the movie and this song is like it is all about um, emotion anger Um the you know even when it's the even when it is sad and and it is being emoted as sad there is still this like visceral sort of hatred that comes underneath the sadness um, and it is just like this is not uh this this is like in some ways the most human um any of these songs will ever be because of how like um viscerally emotional they are but but in other ways it is it it is almost animal because it is just like, you know, it's short and snappy and and um totally without reference to to anything else except for that like sort of sense of like tragic kind of interiority which is just golem.
0: Opening December 18, 2002, The Two Towers grossed $26 million on opening day, the second-highest Wednesday opening at the time, right after The Phantom Menace. It made a hair over $62 million that weekend in North America, the fifth-highest of that year behind Attack of the Clones, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man, and Austin Power Goldmember. Oh my god, what a year. And it does sound like a really good year, even though I really actually only like one of those movies besides Two Towers, (laughs) um, that being Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, but hey, um, those are some big-ass releases. Not Attack
1: of the Clones?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We will not talk about the prequels at this moment. (laughs) Including the Wednesday opening, it pulled in $101.5 million dollars. Across all territories, it made over $99 opening weekend, which made it the highest international opening weekend box office numbers of that year. Um, So combined, all that would lead to counting as the largest opening weekend totals ever globally, though it would eventually lose that title to The Matrix Reloaded and later The Matrix Revolutions. Um, I kind of wonder at one point, um, this is just me thinking aloud, where it just became like the newest biggest blockbuster is just always going to make more than the previous newest biggest blockbuster. Um, I I know it, like, you know, there are spikes, like there is like the force awakens and um, you know, some other like black Panther or something like that. But for the most part, it just Mm -hmm. was a certain point where it's like the latest Batman movie or the latest Avengers movie would just be the latest Harry Potter movie would just be the highest grossest movie ever. Um, I don't really know when that came into Vogue. Um,
1: So I kind of wonder if this is a – I I have, first off, no economic training. Second off, no clue what the fuck I'm talking about. But I wonder if it kind of correlates to the rise of um, disposable income for people. Because, like, you really see the sort of spike and – or, like, the rise of um, big box office numbers, excluding the sort of new Hollywood 70s and 80s blockbusters – you know, where it's not just like there's one a year that's really impressive. It's there's five a year that that is breaking these. You really start to see that around like the mid to late 90s mm-hmm. once disposable income is kind of a thing again. Now, not to discount like the economic shit show that was uh, the 90s for s- so many millions of people, but like there was on average a, a higher – like – proportion of disposable income um, for, you know, your average family um, in the 90s when compared with the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and so I wonder if that's just sort of like, we are kind of in this age of like, I know it's not technically printing money, but there's a lot of money flying around. Um, and it's probably not good that there's that much money flying around, but there's a lot of money flying around. And so like, these inflated numbers just kind of represent the fact that there's like overall more money in the system rather than like anything kind of absolute about the like economics of cinema. No, I
0: think that would make total sense. Um just this is anecdotal but between me and my sister who's almost a decade older than me, um she didn't do what I did. Basically by the time me and my friends could drive in high school, we went to the theater every Friday. Um regardless if we had a movie to watch, it just was the thing to do when you couldn't stream anything. And uh, for those of you who grew up before the streaming era, like Friday and Saturday night television was a joke. Um, like you never put your good <laughs> programming on Friday or uh, Saturday nights because those are the nights that people are out doing things, like going to movies. Um, it's kind of a self-fulfilling cycle in that sense. But yeah, like it became the thing. It's like, well, we're going to the movies because that's the thing to do. And I think because of like the explosion of like, that middle management class of people and the suburbs and all that. Yeah. Um, it just became a far more viable thing to do than even like the people who grew up in the 80s before me. Um, so I, th- I think that's as good a hypothesis as any. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, as much as I try to ignore everything that happens on Emily's side of the pond, it also set <laughs> box office opening weekend records in basically every European country. It set opening day records in Germany, Finland, Belgium, Denmark a bunch of other ones and weekend records in the uk spain france mexico and south korea um i realize not all of those are in europe so i'm not just saying
1: they are now (laughs) thanks for the colonialism damn it
0: (laughs) it was for a brief time the biggest fucking movie in the world um i'm not someone who generally cares about actual box office returns but it is pretty cool to see that a bunch of people want to see my favorite fucking movie as soon as they possibly could (laughs) Its total North American gross was about 340 million, combined with 597 million internationally in 2002 and 2003. And then it would make another 10 million in various re release runs um, over the course of the last 20 years. So as it stands, it's at about $950 million worldwide as of today. Um, Critically speaking, it's pretty much a very similar song that we heard for Fellowship. Um Ebert is still only giving these movies 3 out of 4 stars, saying it's not faithful to the spirit of Tolkien and misplaces much of the God charm King. and whimsy of the books, but it stands on its own as a visionary thriller. So, you can't be all mad at that. Uh most critics gave rave reviews with Gollum and Helm's Deep getting most of the praise. Um several reviews were even adamant at the time that the battle of Helm's Deep was one of the greatest sequences ever, um and definitely the greatest battle sequence. Um, It's got a 95% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I believe from my research a year ago, that's actually the highest of the three um, on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I think uh, Return of the King holds the highest on Metacritic and Fellowship on Letterboxd, but I might have those reversed. Um, Anything you got, Emily?
1: yeah. Well, okay, so I think this is one of the interesting things because I feel like these movies came out at such a unique time in kind of cinema history where like... um, the traditional press was still like a part of the kind of ecosystem, the like culture, the taste making ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So like, um, <clears throat> you know, you could still look to things like ebert or 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 like The New York Times or The New Yorker as like what the critics say there tends to matter for whether people like actually take these things seriously but it's also kind of being tempered by the rise of things like uh like the internet like you know the web 1.0 and and the rise of internet forums and i think just like thinking about the the kind of staggeringly large box office numbers and context what that is kind of making me think is like so so sorry so the, the other context for this is um like a lot of the major blockbusters were were kind of slow burners um like like Uh, a new hope right didn't make all of its money in its first weekend um it it grew in in um in scale scope and scale by word of mouth um and so like its first weekend wasn't its biggest weekend same thing for like a lot of the the kind of major like cornerstone horror movies like halloween um which we all know as like the horror movie it didn't have its first like its biggest weekend in its first weekend it didn't have its biggest weekend in its second weekend it took like a month two months for it to really kind of hit its stride in terms of everybody knowing about it because it was all happening By a word of mouth. Whereas I think like, um, you know, there's the obvious kind of sequel bonus for the the two towers, like fellowship of the ring established the Lord of the Rings as a series, like it established its bona fides. But like, um, I think things like the internet, um, were able to sustain that interest, um, and to also keep the date of the like premiere fresh in people's minds in a way that like, wasn't really, um, the done thing before, before this kind of era. I'm not saying like Two Towers is the first to have this, but like, you know, it wasn't really happening on the scale. And so there's this marriage through, um, through the, the sort of love of the critics, the traditional critics and the traditional media of these movies with the sort of hype on the internet to really build up uh, like a a kind of publicity force of like genuinely preternatural capability that is also probably doomed us for all eternity. But like, really returned in spades, like return on investment in spades for, for the two towers.
0: Yeah. Another thing I'm thinking about is also that um, these are the first times blockbusters like these are really sliding into that Christmas part of the schedule um, where people Mm -hmm. tend to be off, tend to go to movies as a family. Um, It gave me the opportunity to go see it three times in theaters over my Christmas break (laughs) at the time. Um, Because even like the star Wars prequels at this point were may releases, they were definitely considered the summer releases of the year. Um, But these were really sliding into and creating that like November, December spot. I think Harry Potter also has a part to play in that as well. Um, But I think they really kind of um, cultivated because there were like big movies in December, like Home Alone is one of the highest grossing movies of all time, but that's still very a holiday movie. Um, Whereas Mm -hmm. this is definitely something that. If they had released all three Lord of the Rings movies, like Memorial Day weekend, I don't think a lot of people would have thought that odd, um, just because that's a very normal time to release um, big summer blockbusters is right around Memorial Day or right around Fourth of July. Um, So this was also it wasn't going up against too much stuff, although I think Harry Potter was still in theaters at this point. Um, So it's like it's competing in a different way, in a different part of the calendar, and I'm not saying what effect it had specifically, but that also is probably um, something worth examining. Mm -hmm. I'll take that mm as a point to move on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, no. I just totally agreed. I was gonna get, I was gonna launch into something about the Chamber of Secrets, which is the counterpart in the Harry Potter series at this point, and like what that movie was doing versus what Two Towers is doing. But to be honest, I'm already boring myself just thinking about it. it so I'm gonna save everybody that.
0: Oh no. Uh, oh. Okay. Let's just move on. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> unlike a, <laughs> its uh, two counterparts, uh, the Two Towers did not wreck in the nominations and awards to the same degree. Uh, I assume presumably because they had already decided Return of the King would just win them all for the entire trilogy. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Picture, Art Direction, Editing, and Sound, and won for Best Sound Effects and Visual Effects. It took Best VFX at the BAFTAs and Best Costuming, and then swept through a bunch of nerd and technical award shows, as you'd imagine. Howard Shore took the best score Grammy for the Two Towers. And Gollum won for the best virtual performance at the MTV Movie Awards. And yes, I said virtual performance. I guess that's what they were calling it there. And the quote, my precious, uh, made AFI's top 100 quotes at number 85. So I guess that's all the boring stuff. It's weird to ask Emily how she feels about The Two Towers 20 years later, given that she just watched the movie two years huh. ago or three years ago. Huh. Um, but what do you got?
1: Uh, yeah, so I guess I've got this like weird position where, like, I mean, I guess I would have been four when this came out, so I definitely wouldn't have like been fully aware of it anyways. Well, that's not true. Chamber of secrets, anyways, whatever. Um, I'm looking at this like definitely from like having started basically twenty years later. Um, and and it's one of these things where it's like, I mean, tell surprise, i've got mixed feelings on it as, as a whole but like there, there's kind of two i have to like separate it in my in my head into two things which is like one which is the movie and and the other which is the movie's legacy and like the movie is basically unimpeachable to me like i know we've just spent like however many weeks of me being like fuck this movie and uh, the horse it rode in on but like the movie is like as it's kino baby like is the fucking best a movie could ever ever really be um and like short of the empire strikes back um there are not many movies that that um, make me go, oh my god, movies really are magic. Um, blockbuster movies really are magic. Um, and so like, you know, on those grounds, like nothing I think, except for Vampire Strikes Back, can really hold up the t- to the test of time, like like uh, Two Towers has. But then there's this like legacy question, which I think like we do try and grapple with a lot on here but I'm still like, to this day, I just like don't know where I kind of settle on it because like... <sighs> I, I think this movie is instrumental in defining what blockbuster movies are and what they become. Um that is both affectionate and derogatory there. Like I think it's like interesting and kind of helpful that like th- this movie in particular is an adaptation because like while it is defining cinemas or blockbuster movie, blockbuster movies as uh as a as a genre in some ways, um, it's also um helping to build distance from movies as just kind of uh Quicker Spark Notes versions of novels, and like the the I think the the ways in which it differs from the source text tell us um, as much about the like creation of blockbuster movies as like a genre. Not to say that they didn't really exist, but like really, I think a lot of the kind of language is kind of settled in 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 the or in the Lord of the Rings movies. And so like the things, the ways in which it differs from from the the books like tell us a lot about what blockbuster movies uh, were and what they would become. Um, and that's the that's the bit where I kind of go. Was it worth it? Um and the the monkey part of my brain goes, Yes, obviously. Yes, obviously it was worth it. But you know, there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, um, I feel like we've kind of lost, God, I'm gonna sound like a libertarian fucking freak, but I feel like we've kind of lost the middle ground in movies, right? Like we like the Lord of the Rings and, and the Two Towers in particular has this magical ability to to marry the kind of epic cinema with mid-budget schlock and like you're kind of standard kind of silly action movie um and because it is so competent at doing that all other production houses all other producers all other studios thought that they would be able to do that and like i think the facts of history tell us that that is just that they were just fucking wrong like uh, like nobody else has really been able to to recreate that kind of um uh like um uh amalgamation, I guess, that that The Two Towers has. It hasn't really been able to marry the, like, kind of high art of epic cinema with the kind of mid-shitty stuff. And, but they're all trying. And the fact that none of them have achieved it hasn't stopped them from, from trying. And it's not like these are toddlers where you want them to keep getting up and going and trying again and again and again because, like, they keep trying and all they're doing is just pumping out shit like Thor, Love, and Thunder. And, like, I think we're all just, like... It, like I think the movie industry is basically fucked for for that because like you know I went and saw Cocaine Bear um a couple <laughs> weeks ago and just was like I was so ready for it to be like a Sam Raimi kind of dumb easy fun kind of thing and it ended up being long and like navel gazy and like boring and like way too expensive for what it was and also just like made me hate digital movies more than anything i feel and um, and like what i realized was like i was looking for the existence of a mid-budget movie in, an, in a movie industry that now exists after the two towers um in which like nobody thinks mid-budget movies should be possible um and i think like You know, is it fair of me to lay that entirely at... Well, is it fair of me to lay that blame at the feet of the Two Towers? Yes. Is it fair of me to, like, knock the Two Towers for that? Probably not. Um, But that is the kind of, like complexity I guess you need this complexity I I feel about the two towers 20 years on where I'm like wouldn't it be great if we could have had these movies in a vacuum and like you know it's like the velvet underground thing where like nobody listened to the velvet underground but like the people who did went on to make bands of their own but it turns out a lot of those bands were shit so it probably would have just been better if they'd never listened to the velvet underground in the first place but like I love the two towers so I'm gonna defend its existence for forever Um, and, and yeah and that's just kind of the like um kind of sclerotic um uh, vibe i have tor- towards this movie this movie in particular as well because it's doing so much um and has so much more of an influence than its predecessor fellowship
0: so this is, this is going to be interesting you know who did listen to the velvet underground and did go on to make good stuff hideo kojima who wrote Was the it? metal gear salad <laughs> series <laughs> uh, there we go. i do want to i also love the velvet underground to be <laughs> fair uh, i do want to uh what's it called uh actually use that as a starting point as I'm not sure that I disagree with you, but I think I have kind of a different take um, insofar as um, in our coverage of Metal Gear Solid, um, the video game series on Podcasts on Frontiers. Um, the period that I really felt like I learned a lot about was from the release of 1998's Metal Gear Solid 1 through 2008 Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, as part of our podcast, we dived into the console technology and moving from games from to CDs to DVDs, um, how the hard drive worked, how like code libraries worked, and all the like firmware stuff, and how <laughs> game consoles morphed into this multimedia um, kind of devices. So instead of having just a thing that played video games, now they play movies, they stream shit. Um, you can play your music CDs on there. Um, so through all that research, 1998 through 2008 to me was kind of the wild west of the digital technology age where people were still experimenting with form and format. Um, how we did stuff, we didn't standardize on Blu ray DVDs, like we went through a couple different iterations. There were HD DVDs, um, there were you know other kind of competitors, we didn't have USB drives exclusively, we had um other kind of like zip drives or Omega drives. Um, And this is also working off of like, you know, writable CDs. Um, All of this bullshit that I'm trying to spew right now is basically says like no one really figured out the formula formula yet for creating stuff during this digital age. Um, And the fact that the Lord of the Rings films, all three of them were presumably done by around 1999 in terms of uh, general filming, which also means kind of the general scripting was all pretty much solid at that point. Um, I don't view it as influential on the modern blockbuster age so much as stuff at the tail end of that 1998 to 2008 era I'm talking about, where um, we did start to see, okay, we're standardizing on Blu-ray DVDs, we're standardizing on digital filmmaking, we're standardizing on this type of motion capture, and the stuff that's coming up around 2008 is like Iron Man and the Dark Knight and the later Harry Potter films, and I feel like those are kind of where the DNA for our current stuff really is. As much as I do think The Lord of the Rings is part of it, it's just a lot further removed from the top of like the people I would blame for everything sucking shit right now. Um, Even if it is still (laughs) dominant in its own right, I still feel like there's enough of kind of... And I don't want to valorize old school production methods as just being inherently better um, because they come with their own issues but i feel like it is still of an age of a different kind of mode of film production than the one maybe say six or seven years down the road that really kind of defined where we're at now i don't know if that makes sense to you
1: Yeah, it does. It does. I think it's also, like, you know, I've kind of got these blinders on um, because, not just because, like, this is the film from the 2000s that I think about the most, but, like, I think also because a lot of the other kind of major movies of that kind of milieu like just have been usurped like like nobody's been able to do it like the lord of the rings has but a lot of movies have like even if they haven't been able to capture that kind of early like glory days of action movies in like the the mid 2000 or the early 2000s like they have done enough to kind of surpass most of those movies Mm -hmm. and my head Mm -hmm. is like what i would think of when i think of an action whereas like the lord of the rings like you say just like totally stands apart um and and so like that is good in some ways because it means that like nobody's been able to kind of muddy the waters there
0: but bad in other ways because it just makes it an easy target for me <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> uh, and yeah uh, and to be fair i do think you can absolutely lame a lot of, put a lot of this on peter jackson cuz the hobbit movies are part of that milieu um and uh. those definitely are like all the worst excesses of like kind of modern filmmaking even though i know um i'll give peter this much credit he was trying to do stuff with frame rate and like there wasn't like a complete abandonment of trying to do new stuff. Um, and there was also a troubled production and there's also labor issues, which he wasn't great about. But, um, I think you can look at the Hobbit movies as being a big part of the problem. Um, whereas I'm a little more forgiving of the first Lord of the Rings trilogy, just because it kind of was mostly created right before things really started to figure out what the modern mode of production was going to be. Um, I'm sorry yeah. I keep calling it mode yeah, of production. There's got to be a better word for it,
1: <laughs> um, but I can't think of it. So,
0: <laughs> um, so I I don't think there's anything else I need to add uh, because I probably spent the last 21 episodes saying the two towers is my favorite movie, probably 20 episodes. I probably did not say it during the skilly is burning episode. Um, I, I know where <laughs> to pick my spots. Um, it's definitely the movie of the three that I've watched the most. Um, it's it, probably not by a substantial amount, um, but of the three, it's just because it is my favorite. It's probably the one I'm more likely to watch just on my own out of nowhere. Whereas almost all every time I watch Return of the King, it's because I watched Two Towers before it or I watched the entire trilogy. Um, I, there, no real value judgment on that. It's just the one I've watched the most. Um, I think watching it now for the podcast, um, I'm super impressed with the CGI. Um, not that it looks as good uh-huh. as it possibly could as of 2023, but that it, it looks as good as it does 20 years after the fact, where blockbusters I've seen in the last six to nine months look like dog shit. Um, and uh-huh. especially a lot of them, like, say, Wakanda Forever or Quantumania, which are trying to do big digital backdrops or a lot of nighttime uh, shooting. And then you can't see anything or it's just a bunch of mush. Whereas everything in the backgrounds and foregrounds here feels like it was carefully crafted. Even if like the writing sucks or there's nothing interesting being done. It, it feels like care went into, um, in a way that I don't even feel like happens any, at any point in this modern day and age. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think it's also one of these things where, like, um, you know, like if you think about like the timeline of like technology, uh, like uh, taking a really big view of it, for, you know, for the last a thousand years, um, there are like spans of hundreds of years where like the the leaps forward in technology don't really feel that significant, and then comes the space race, um, or you know, comes World War Two, and then the space race, and like the leaps forward in technology are so like enormously massive that like we now cannot possibly imagine ourselves. Um, in the sort of technological mindset of the people like of our parents generation or their parents generation because those gaps are so massive and like I think the lord of the rings and the two tower towers in particular because of gollum um represents one of those like <laughs> great leaps forward uh, one of those massive leaps forward that like um you know everything that precedes it pales in comparison now um but then the fact that we haven't really had that kind of impressive like like we haven't had a consistent trajectory, um, upwards trajectory following that. So like whereas Gollum should have been the moment from which like all CG just like started rapidly increasing in quality. Um, like instead it's been kind of harnessed and, and fucked sideways by like capitalism. Um and, and so the inefficiencies of capitalism mean that like the shit like we should be have we should be looking at vastly more impressive CG than we are now. And instead we're looking at like CG that we could have basically achieved um two years after uh, the Two Towers came out, um, except it's twenty years after, and, and it's kind of inexcusable.
0: Uh, so uh, back during that fabled Rings of Power era of television that we all lived <laughs> through, um, one of my <laughs> friends, uh, Joanna Robinson, over at The Ringer, just did an informal Twitter poll, like, "What is your favorite Lord of the Rings movie?" Um, and The Two Towers ended up, I won't say running away with it, but it didn't just narrowly win; it won by a significant deal, and I know. It's a self-selecting circle of people who follow her on Twitter, even though she does have a large following. Um, but she and several other people were kind of surprised by it, that The Two Towers was uh-huh. such a fan favorite. Um, I think the consensus still is that Fellowship is the actual best movie of the three, um, or at least that's the consensus from uh, where just like the community I'm in. Uh, and I don't just mean Emily. I mean <laughs> more than more than just Emily. <laughs> um, and then there, I also think I feel like I see a lot more... Uh, Return of the King favorites. I just think because it has a lot of the like payoffs and climaxes that people just you know, it makes them feel warm and squishy inside, uh the last hour and the eighteen various endings and all that stuff. Um and all I mean, Return of the King's a good movie. I don't I sound like I'm totally just shitting on it there. Um But it's like the two towers, like I champion it as my favorite. Um, I don't think I would say it's the best, um, but it is definitely my favorite. That's so much without a doubt. Um, It kind of feels like how Mm. when I was growing up, I would say Return of the Jedi was my favorite Star Wars movie. Um, Not necessarily because I I knew deep in my soul that A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back were better, but it's just like the Luke's fight with Vader or Mm -hmm. the speeder bike chase or the rescue at Jabba's palace. Like those moments Uh just work so well for me, especially work so well for me as a kid, that it was just hard to kind of let go of that opinion for a while. Um, I'm still obstinately holding on to my two towers is the greatest movie ever opinion. Um, But I think it just, (laughs) it kind of has that like, working class aspect to it, where it just like, kind of understated, it's not the, you know, big intro or the big finish, but it's like one of the most competent, like, Parts of a story that I've ever seen, even with all the complaints we voiced over the last twenty some episodes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's basically fair. It, it's funny because um, this was the movie that was like. You know, when I first started watching these movies, everyone was like, "The Two Towers is the best," and it was like kind of one of these things that people treated like it was like an unquestioning fact, like, like kind of like how people talk about Empire, where you know people are like, "Empire is the best," and and nobody really disagrees. Um, people may disagree in terms of like what their favorite is, but like everyone's like, "Yeah, obviously Empire is the best," um, even though I, I'm growing like, like increasingly
0: quibbling with that. But never mind. Are you saying like a it new was hope the it was always treated. One.
1: <laughs> yeah, New Hope. Yeah, no, um, I, I go back and
0: forth on it. No, a New Hope. Um, a new hope. Uh, a new hope yeah. just fucking rules. Uh. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I mean, it's kind of. It also has the like fellowship thing for me, where it is like it is the armed ramp to everything else. And so, like, yes. Um, but like, uh, but there's just so much mystique around it as well. And I think it is like it is treated as almost untouchable. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, but it is. It is funny, I think, because there are so many like generational kind of cultural instincts at play here um like one of the things we're about to talk about like the attitude towards sequels i think like for like um people of a certain age who are used to sequels being just like absolutely dog shit like they were like rightly more skeptical of the two towers and so would have been surprised at the fact that it was so good whereas like for people of other generations where like there are a lot of good sequels like um the fact of a sequel being good is just kind of a it's 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 a non-entity of a of a point it's like yes obviously um And so it's interesting to see the kind of legacy of the Two Towers. And I think in some ways the Two Towers has really become the yes. lord of the rings as a whole um you know i think when people talk about the lord of the rings movies really they're just talking about the two towers um and and return of the king may occasionally play into it and bits of the fellowship uh, bits of fellowship like for the shire mostly and for you know moria will play into it but but really people are talking about um the lead up to helms deep and helms deep itself and and that is the kind of cultural legacy that, that the lord of the rings films will have left in the end
0: and in something that's like specifically parts of a like a ver- like a singular story, so I'm like excluding something like say Terminator Two or like Aliens, where it kind of feels like each movie just kind of like they exist, but it's not like this is one story like concretely the same way say the Lord of the Rings trilogy is. Um, I think there's just something to the benefit of just feeling like you're in the middle of a story you love. Um, I think about Mm -hmm. it when I'm rewatching Game of Thrones or when I'm rereading A Song of Ice and Fire, I love being late book two, early book three, which is like late season two, middle of season three, just like Firmly in the middle of the story. Like, everything's in motion, but all the big stuff is kind of coming up, but not quite here yet. Um, And then you get to some of those bigger moments, whether it's the last March of the ants or the Red Wedding. But that just, you really feel like you're in the meat of the story. Um, And that just is kind of thrilling in its own way. Like, there's still a long way to the end of it, but you're not just in the beginning steps of the journey. Um, I I don't really know. There should be a German word to describe that phenomenon. Um, I... (laughs) That, that's my only take on I'm sure there is as well. Oh. Yeah.
1: I, I think it's also like there. there's... So I was watching... I was, I was marathoning all the Scream movies. Not all the Scream movies. I got to the new... Like the fourth, I think it is, with Emma Roberts. And that was so fucking awful that I couldn't watch the fifth. But I know I have to go back before the sixth. But anyways. in Scream 2, I believe it is. There's this bit where it's like all of the top like teen stars of the early 2000s. So it's like... Sarah Michelle Michelle Geller, uh, uh Joshua Jackson um oh fuck uh Timothy Oliphant uh, oh, no, yeah. there's one other in there like that sneaks in there they're like all in a, a college classroom a college film class and they're like debating you know the the question of like violence in movies but then they get onto this issue of like sequels and and um this argument breaks out between the one kid and Timothy Oliphant about like whether or not it's possible for a sequel to surpass the original movie, and you know they 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 throw out the question of like Aliens or T two or Empire, but they all kind of go like, but would those sequels have really been anything had it not been for um been for the original that that sets it up, and and I think that kind of question is really interesting in the context of the Lord of the Rings movies because um I would say that um there is a clear kind of not consensus, but there—I I think there are a lot of people who would who would answer, um, yeah, the two towers would still be great if fellowship sucked, um, because like there's not much in the two towers that requires you know, stuff from Fellowship to be as good as it was to to really work. It, it stands on its own, but I'm very much of the opinion that I don't think The Two Towers would have worked at all without um, with, without uh, I was going to call it A New Hope, without Fellowship. And it's sort of the same reason why I kind of go back and forth on whether or not I actually think Empire is the better of the two movies, because like, how much of Empire actually relies on us, knowing who these pe- these characters are from A New Hope and I tend towards uh, almost all of it does. And, and Two Towers kind of sits that same way for me, where like um you kind of can't talk about it in in absence of the sec like its original movie um because it's not really built to be a movie on its own it's built to be a sequel and so this question of like does it surpass the original feels kind of like a a futile question to me in in so many ways because it like what is what is you know yin without yang i guess
0: yeah no i think that makes sense i think that's almost an existentially at the heart of the sequel question like it's almost like unavoidable. I do kind of want to make someone watch the Godfather part two first. Cause I think that might be one you can actually do um, because yeah. it's like Michael Corleone's story after the first Godfather, but then it's also cutting to Don Vito Corleone's story who was Marlon Brando in the first, but Robert De Niro in the second and like his rise to power before the events of the first Godfather. Um, so it would be kind of fun to have someone watch Godfather two first. So they like, Watch the two pieces of bread and then go back and watch the Godfather to get the meat and the vegetables in the middle um, and see if like mm-hmm. that actually works. Because there are definitely call outs or like, you know, there are things that happen in the first one that affect the second one. But the second one, especially like the Michael Corleone stuff that happens after the end of the first Godfather film, that's not in Mario Puzo's book. Um, so it's not like they're necessarily building off. There's like a whole new set of villains. The only thing that matters is you kind of know what the Corleone family, like hierarchy and structure was like returning characters. Um, but like, I think Godfather might be like the one example where you can really do it. Um, T2 is very tonally different than T1, but I don't think Mm -hmm. that movie is as cool unless you know that Arnold was the bad guy the first time out. Um, That's like such a big... I
1: actually watched that one first, which made it fucking baffling to me. And then when I went back and watched Terminator, I was like, right, I get this now, but Terminator is still the superior (laughs) (laughs) movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, So, (laughs) um, and I think the other thing, I think another reason a lot of people like the two towers, especially as a sequel, is that it definitely feels like it blew up the story in a great way. Like in terms of like you had a very like simple or straightforward story, I'll at least say, with the fellowship kind of trying to take the ring to Mordor. And then it just kind of blows up Characters are scattered to the wind. um, And then you have all sorts of new, interesting political questions come in because you actually meet various kingdoms of men, Rohan and Gondor. Um, So it feels like it's an explosion, not just in the scale of the story, but the scope of it as well. Um, I know we bag on the politics of the movies and it's totally fair to bag on it. But it was still definitely a layer of complication that um, at least I didn't really see coming the first time through um, because I was still kind of picturing this as like a... Legend of Zelda kind of a story or Final Fantasy Mm -hmm. Um, because video games, like I said before, were like my basis for fantasy at this point. Um, So I didn't expect like kingdoms of men and who's ruling and secession crises. Um, and all that kind of stuff to actually kind of factor into it. Um, So I think a lot, like court intrigue, you know, it's kind of the Game of Thrones thing, but um, I'm not trying to make that same comparison over and over because it's a bit reductive, but um, it was a level of the story I wasn't just expecting. It's not just heroes fighting goblins on their way to destroy thing at place. Um, There was a lot more going on.
1: Yep, I feel you on that one. Yeah, and I I think there's also something like... (sighs) I don't know how to articulate this well, but like I, I think um there is like a richness to the possibility of sequels that I think has been like um, like that is often ignored by the like need to make things stand alone um and i think there's like i think we tend to look at movies right like they always have to be standalone movies um and and i and and basically what you are saying there where like there is this kind of richness and depth to kind of jumping back into things that you already know and i and i think it's always been the problem of like movies as a whole uh, or the the movie industry at least the american movie industry is that they've never quite understood how to like fully embrace sequels um, and how to really make um you know make pay from them and um, and i think like the lord of the rings does it really really well because the lord of the rings just goes into it being like yeah you're gonna know who these characters are we know you saw fellowship we know you saw fellowship we know that shit haunted your dreams for months afterwards so just like jump back in we're not gonna do any 101 but i think people have like I think studios have been increasingly backed off of that and been like we have to like reintroduce everything and be so careful about it all. And I think in that we've kind of lost the kind of potential for this magic in in the world of sequels. Um and I think it is a shame I would like to see something else you know, really go into to doing a a series with confidence um in the way that the Lord of the Rings series went into it with confidence. Not overconfidence like the fucking Mandalorian expecting you to watch some other bullshit <laughs> TV show um before getting into it. But like confidence that you've seen the other movie in the se- in the series. The only movie in the series, and that you don't like that you are also just waiting to get back into that world. I think that's the kind of art to it that that we're kind of lacking right now uh,
0: and this is gonna sound like a little bit of a diss on uh, the Lord of the Rings films, but I also the way the depth to which they're portraying most of these characters is like not super deep um they yeah. they all tend to find kind of fall into archetypes or kind of familiar characters you might recognize from other types of media so like you could kind of pick up like oh aragorn he's class ranger and he's like the cyclops or the leonardo turtle or whatever like he's he's the leader you know moe's the leader as homer would say um i don't know which of uh like Liz and gimli are uh Shemp and. uh Curly, but I guess they're the same character. Anyways, okay. Does anyone know what the Three Stooges is anymore? Sorry. Um but like you just you just kinda know. Like they kind of fit into roles where I think people could probably pick up what these characters are like from their first scenes in the movies. Um like Aragorn, and Gimli and Legolas chasing down the Urukai. You can kind of get what their deal is um frodo and sam you can you can get sam's deal right away like the first scene of him talking in the two towers is like him being like optimistic about lemba spread and like cool i totally know what this (laughs) character is all about now um but yeah, yeah i think that's a very good point Right, so when we wrapped up Fellowship, we did a little segment where we argued why Fellowship is the best of the three films. Same concept here. We're going to talk about why Two Towers is the best film. In a bit of a role reversal from last time, I get to speak my truth and Emily gets to be a dirty, <laughs> filthy liar. Um, but Emily, why is The Two Towers the best Lord of the Rings film or a Tolkien adaptation or whatever angle you want to take with it?
1: Um. I think it is the best um, Tolkien adaptation, the best Lord of the Rings film and Tolkien adaptation. I will take these two things together. Um, because I think it is one of the movies that really understands what the Lord of the Rings was attempting to do to um, the novel as as a medium and to uh, the genre of fantasy. And to really translate that into filmmaking. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the kind of first shot that we get, that first beautiful spanning shot of uh, the three hunters in Rohan. I think that to me um, is is one of the things that gets damn near um perfect capture of of the kind of sense of like am um, awe. Um, and and genuine fantasy um that you get when reading the sort of scene setting descriptions and Tolkien's writing. I think that that is really the moment in which um the, the production team have like fully grasped the medium um and the genre by by the horns and and and, and really sort of understood the assignment i guess to mix a million or one metaphors in a single sentence um, and i think and i think it's the is the movie that i think reaches the spectacular highs of tolkien's writing um it, it, you know maybe not faithfully via the plot but in terms of the feelings they evoke the emotions they evoke and that sense of like childlike awe and wonder but also sort of like over awe um it, it, this is the one that does it this is the one that captures it Um, And I think it's also one of the most sort of, like, sensually sort of affecting of the movies. I think, you know, there's a lot in fellowship. You know, you can smell the shire, you can hear the shire. Um, But this is one of these movies where um, um, it it takes that sense of sense of sense. (laughs) um, And it knows when to sort of engage them and overwhelm you with all of your senses at once. And it also knows when to strip you away from them. Um, And and so in that, um, I think it it, it does the thing that... um, it, it articulate or articulates inadvertently i think the thing that is always true of novels where you always feel that distinction from novels and 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 the separation between you and the characters and the plot as you're reading a book it, um is a, is a central part of the experience of reading a book and this is the movie that also understands that that is true in cinema the best and so like creating that sense of lack and creating that sense of distance while it is also pulling you in reeling you in um, is, is this massive success of, of The Two Towers you know like things like the, the raindrops hitting the armor at Helm's Deep the sound of that will always stick with me will always be one of the things that I think of first when I think of uh, The Two Towers and um, just this feeling of sort of um, is there there is a world that it, the that the movie is trying to envelop you in and can't because of the the medium, but it is aware of the fact that it can't and it so it's going to that ninety nine percent and letting you kind of let your imagination run wild for that last one percent and and that that is what Tolkien's writing does for me and and that is what the Two Towers does for me um, better than than any of the other um, adaptations and and put head and shoulders above the rest.
0: Yeah, no, that's ex- extremely well said. Uh, and I, I don't even know how to really answer this question because this has been my viewpoint for <laughs> about a year's worth of podcasting. Uh, pro- actually, probably I probably said this a lot during our fellowship coverage too. So um, almost two <laughs> years, year and a half of podcasting. Um, and everything I've said is you know, I've said before, like the story basically hits the ground running or technically it hits the ground falling as it starts with Gandalf and Balrog. And that's like one of the coolest scenes, like this movie had me at hello. Like, you know, I talked about it in our very first episode, but like, you pull back from the New Line Cinema logo and you're just kind of like helicopter shotting around mountains. And I'm like, oh, very nice. You know, mood setting. This is great. You know, this gets me back in the vibes. I love the (laughs) landscape shots. And then immediately we zoom in and are in the middle of like the best moment of fellowship. Um, It just like immediately Uh feels like this movie wants you to like pay attention to it from the first like 30 seconds. Um, It is not something that kind of eases you into it. It it gets you into it right away. Um, We talked about the explosion of scope and scale. I also think there is like a level of difficulty in adapting the two towers um that is kind of really hard to match um Whereas, like, you know, Gollum, I think, is the biggest part. But, like, we talked about it with the Ents, how there's kind of, like, a high buy-in there. And that's a mix of different technologies and trying to make it not look hokey in the context of everything else they're doing. Um, And then all that stuff would kind of be sorted out by Return of the King because they did it for the Two Towers. Um, So it's not as impressive, even if they did refine it a little bit over that time. Um, So I I don't know. I think it's also... um, this story feels just a little more heavy, a little more serious. I think introducing Rohan specifically, but also Gondor as little as it was actually adapted. Um, but I think uh-huh. it adds a lot more doom because we're starting to see what people in this world actually are reacting to, like the people of Rohan, the court of Rohan. Um, and it's not just our little fellas off on an adventure. It's just a little more context for the adventure that's happening as the centerpiece of the story. Um, uh-huh. And then it's just, it's got all that cool moments. It's got Gandalf in the Balrog. It's got Legolas jumping on a horse in a physically impossible way. Um, The Battle of Helm's Deep and, you know, the Last March of the Ents. Um, I think all that stuff's great. Um, All the new additions to the cast, and again, this is mostly focused on Rohan, um, but Bernard Hill, Miranda Otto, Brad Dourif, Carl Urban, even if they don't have much to do at various points, Um, what they do do, they do pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. Andy Circus, of course, as Gollum, Um John Rhys-Davies was already in the cast, but I almost like Treebeard more than I like Gimli in these movies. So, um, yeah, hard to say. And then of course the music, um, the big one is the Rohan theme, which I think is one of the best musical pieces ever written. Um, it is beautiful. It is sad. It is wonderful. Um, and then of course the music that goes along with the last March of the Ents and the last charge at Helm's Deep. That's also a mix of the white rider music. Um, like you said, it's a very sensory movie. The look of it, the feel of it, the sound of it, um, that's where it's its like triggering that reptile portion of your brain um, that just re- reacts <laughs> to stimulus. And this movie is that uh, more so than anything for me.
1: Yep. Agreed on all.
0: a little fun so fun i don't know why i'm calling it that um let's just talk about some of our favorite stuff um why don't you go first what are some of your favorite performances in this movie
1: yeah, I'm gonna steal this one out right from underneath you, Andy Circus. Uh, Andy Circus man. What the fuck? Um, oh my god. I, I was thinking about this the other day. I was you know what I was like? I was rewatching Andor. um Aspen does., um, and I was rewatching uh, the Narcino Five arc. and and like realizing how little time Andy Circus is actually in those episodes and and realizing like how masterful of an actor he is and also like how true that is for so much of his career like he 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 occupies genuinely so little space like we often do not see his actual face at all but he just he really did make or break the movie industry in 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 the early 2000s and i think like what the actual assen- like uh, assessment there is? He made the 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 movie industry of, of the early two uh, thousands, and 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 Gollum is like you know they could have rested on their laurels with Gollum and just had a Gollum who w- looked as amazing as Gollum did. But like they had Andy Sarkis in there. So they, it meant that they also had a breathtaking performance as well. And I think this is kind of the cruelty of um of of how the the Academy in particular, but how sort of all critics have have treated Andy Circus's career and and particularly his performance as Gollum, where they've kind of been overawed by The like CG of Mm -hmm. Gollum and have really underrated the the just fucking mastery of his performance and I and I and you know there's something so inhuman about Gollum in his in his look but there's something so human about um, Andy Serkis's performance and if that perfect balance hadn't been struck there'd just be nothing um, you know not not nothing but almost nothing to these movies um, because it would just fall so flat for so much of it. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's so, it's great to talk about the, the technical mastery of Gollum, but I think the, the craft mastery of Andy Serkis is is all the more important to to
0: recognize. No, uh, obviously, I think that's probably the runaway favorite. Um, and I don't mind you stealing it at all from me. Um, someone had to talk <laughs> about him and I do it quite a bit anyway. So um, I do appreciate <laughs> the Andor reference there and though. Um, so... Uh, Another one I want to highlight, as shitty as he is in real life, John Reese Davies as Treebeard, uh, I just think is great. Um, I know I don't want to give him all the credit um, because there's a lot that goes into the performance between motion capture, between the big like mechanical rig that's on there, um, and a lot of that is also just like the value of uh, Billy Boyd and uh, Dominic Monaghan are also a big part about why Treebeard works as well as he does. But I think it just rules. I love the voice for Treebeard and how they make that voice come to life for the movie. Um, and obviously, he's at the core of one of the best scenes of the movie in the Last March of the Ents. Uh, You know, Gimli is—he's fine. He's just—he's—he's he's a minor comp- character relative to other things going on in these movies. But I feel like Treebeard is really like a great performance, and that's also a performance that really needs to work, um, or else. A third okay. of this movie is just really kind of weird and hokey. Um, <laughs> and thankfully it does work. And John Reese davis is a big part of that.
1: Yep. Absolutely agreed. Um, and, and, and the reverse of that, the inverse of that, guys who are um, awful in the movie, but seem perfectly lovely in real life, um, Brad Dorif. Mm-hmm. Um Brad Dorif, I think, is doing a lot of work here because I think he's like, well, okay, fine. Elijah Wood is American and so is Sean Astin. But like of all the kind of like side characters... Um, I'm pretty sure he's like the only American out there um in that cast. And so he's he's holding up the South for us all. Uh, so bless him for that. Um but I mean uh Wormtongue, right, is a character that by like all rights should have no depth. Um he should just be a sort of slapstick baddie. Um but again, um Brad Dwarf brings just such an incredible depth to to Wormtongue. Um and and I think take something that like the Rohan scenes, as I've said, uh, ad nauseum, were kind of written with no real depth to them. They are very much what you see is what you get. Um, there's not much additional thought um, from the, the sort of production side um, into these scenes. And, and, and. Brad Dorif, I think, elevates these scenes by adding so much more into it, and it's never explored in the movies. It's just the sort of hints that you get at the sort of fringes of his performance that really make the the sort of vibrancy and, and liveliness and, and decrepitness as well of Rohan work. Um, and and I think um, he, like John Noble, who we'll get to in, in Return of the King, just has the really thankless job of having to be a bad guy in a movie where there's not there's no moral grayness um, at all, and and um and and so there's not much desire to sort of pat him on the back but but he deserves it for really bringing so much depth and personality and um and 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 kind of tragedy to a character that didn't wasn't written to to have that in the in the first place
0: yeah absolutely uh because there i mean even how he's written in the movie is pretty flat as is um, but Dorif uh-huh. like through his various looks, like when Aomere's choking him and he's looking over at Eowyn, like there is like actual like pathos and like tragedy somewhere in his eyes. Um, that the writing isn't really doing any favors, but like Brad Dorif is able to make that come across. Um and he just he looks so good without eyebrows, that's so unfair. <laughs> um not that he looks good, but it like he pulls off the no eyebrow look with a plum. <laughs> Uh, so the last one I want to highlight and sorry Emily I got to do this is I want to give Vigo some love. Um just just in the <laughs> same way like in with fellowship I chose that as a time to highlight Dominic Monahan's performance here. Um uh, I really feel like The Two Towers is Aragorn's movie more so than Return of the King. Um, mostly because uh, in the theatrical edition yeah. of Return of the King, Aragorn basically disappears for like 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> he like goes into the past of the dead, but he do- doesn't really emerge again until they arrive at Pelennor Fields. Um, the theatrical edition does not have the scene where they actually accost the Corsairs from Umbar. Um, it just kind of skips over all that. Uh, so like he is just missing from the movie that's, you know, ostensibly titled after him. Um, he feels much more of a linchpin here, and he's also part of this movie from the get-go. Whereas he was like, he comes in about forty minutes into uh, Fellowship of the Ring, um, and I really think because Helms Deep is the big, the big fucking thing in this movie, and he's basically the star mm-hmm. of it. It's his like debutante ball, his coming out party, um, and then because Bernard Hill's probably the other runaway MVP for me in these movies. Um, a lot of that is opposite Vigo Mortensen. Uh, Bernard Hill and Vigo have a really good rapport, both in this movie and Return of the King. Vigo also has a lot of the best stuff opposite Ian McKellen in this movie, who doesn't have a lot of stuff in this movie, really. Um, but he he gets to be the best uh, scene partner. He gets to be the action hero. He just kind of is a jack-of-all-trades in this movie. He is kind of like the narrative linchpin of this movie specifically. Even when they go out of bounds with his character and do like Jesus Christ swimming through the river of whatever. Um, and like his whole fake death stuff, it's all, you know, pretty well done, at least from a performance and cinema standpoint. Um, so I just wanted to give Vigo some love because I probably won't be naming him for return of the King. And I feel like he is such an important part of these movies working that I'd feel bad if I didn't dedicate some time to giving him some love. (laughs) all fair all fair yeah. i i know i know your truck is mostly with aragorn not with vigo so i am not putting any yeah. of it he i
1: wish he'd had more of like a i mean obviously he's had a great career um but i wish he'd still had an even bigger career i i think he's had a career he's happy with which is what matters really but like god i wish he'd show up in in more things that i actually put on <laughs> not that cronenberg isn't great but like my god <laughs> quite happy for a lot uh, like of a Wednesday evening watch
0: <laughs> let's see if we can get him into uh, Dune part 2 I guess that's probably too close to uh, post production oh at this point but uh, he would have oh, been great I think um, it's, yeah it's actually oh. kind of funny uh, I don't want to spoil our Aragorn episode too much but it turns out I really haven't seen Vigo and stuff outside of the Lord of the Rings because I don't watch Cronenberg <laughs> films because oh. I'm not big on horror and body horror stuff um,
1: yeah but- yeah that, that'll do
0: it <laughs> Uh what about your favorite scene or moment?
1: Gollum fighting himself. That's really it for me. That not really is in the sum total but like there's is, there is no scene that is rises above the rest quite like that one i think that is like all of the things that are great um not just andy circus's performance but like the movie takes itself seriously enough to really just let that scene breathe and sing um it's the technical mastery it's the cinematic mastery they don't make any rookie mistakes rookie filmmaking mistakes um it is it, it is the Precision timing of it as well to come at a moment when I think we're all sort of least inclined to feel any sympathy for Gollum, um, and, and then it's um, and then it's the fact that Andy Serkis delivers the performance that he does, um, and it just it, it is um a few things come close to that scene for me in terms of how often I think about them um, versus, I think, how often they are lauded. Uh, That one is, I think, not just my favorite, but also, like, criminally underrated.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great choice. Uh, And I've already talked about, like, my two favorite scenes at length, the Balrog fight at the beginning and the Last March of the Ends. So I want to go with Aragorn's big boss tracking sequence when they come across the dead uruk (laughs) pile. Uh, nice, it is nice. definitely book bookended uh, like it starts with um, Aragorn breaking his toe and kicking the helmet, uh, which everyone loves to quote. <laughs> and it basically goes all the way up until the introduction of Treebeard um, when Pippin climbs up him and his eyes open. But really, when Aragorn's down on the ground and he's kind of surveying the floor and then they do that great cross cutting sequence between Aragorn and Legolas fig- figuring out what happened versus actually seeing Merry and Pippin's escape at nighttime. Um, It's also a great job of balancing lighting and color palette because we're doing these hard cuts from like daytime to nighttime, back and forth really fast. And it's not assaulting on the eyes at all. It feels very smooth and natural. Um, And then also it's just all well staged, well choreographed. And it just so perfectly transitions into leading into Fangorn Forest, um, that final uh, Mm -hmm. scene where Treebeard finally makes his debut and stomps that one orc. Um, Like all that stuff is so good, but I just really specifically wanted to call out when they're cutting back and forth as like a hobbit lay here and another here and then finding the clues. Like I get excited watching that. It's like, oh, they're dead. But what if? And then like yeah. it it just really, really takes you for a ride. There's so few scenes that really can do that on a 103 watch, but that scene truly does.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's great every time.
0: All right. so how about favorite quote And I'm going to go first because I think everyone knows mine Yes Um, It is right (laughs) after um, the death of Theodrid Or the funeral of Theodrid When they cut back to the court And news of the Westfold burning And the little girl who rode to Edoras Asks Eowyn, where's mama? And then Eowyn just says, shut up (laughs) Or she just shushes her, I guess But it is so funny It's like, where's my mom? Shh! (laughs) <laughs> that is the highlight of eowyn in this movie for me uh, uh, okay
1: <laughs> she is a girl boss that is her most girl boss moment she's earned it shut the fuck up kid how dare you ask about your mother
0: <laughs> okay what, what, what's yours oh, so
1: perfect um you know what all right let's do it uh is uh, almost that, yeah, it is that exact scene. It's like four lines later. Uh, Theoden hitting Aragorn with the "When last I looked," Theoden, not Aragorn, was king of Rohan. Because it's like there's so much in there, but it's also just so fucking funny that we have a character who can finally tell Aragorn to fuck <laughs> off, um, and like, okay, whatever. He may be wrong about it, even though he is wrong. But like, it it adds a, it lends an air of like. Oh, hang on. Like, hang on. There's something more going on to this plot here. Um, and and we now have to pay attention because like not is not all is as it seems. Um, and I think it also lends a sort of sense of like um it, it, not grayness, but like there's a fluidity to this and and it and, and it lets you ask for the first time in these films. I mean, not the first time, Boromir I think kind of does this, but Boromir didn't really stand a chance. Theoden um allows us to ask for the first time. Is the kind of Aragorn Gandalf um, uh, alliance? Is that always the right one? Um, and and allowing that to kind of happen, um, and allowing that to happen at such a high tension moment, I think is is one of the great successes of of
0: the film. And also, fuck Aragorn. I knew that was coming. But uh, my, my <laughs> actual uh, choice would be uh, Pippin's. The closer we are to danger, the further we are from harm. Um, oh. We just talked about that a couple episodes ago, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but it's just that little bit of like that perfect Hobbit alchemy of is this incredibly clever, or incredibly stupid, um, kind of very similar <laughs> to some of the stuff Bilbo says very early in fellowship. So um, I really love that. And then, of course, I also want to mention taking the Hobbits to Isengard. Um you know, like list what your elf I see. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard. It just all of that stuff is so, is so is so funny to me. Um, it both works and also it doesn't work. But it, I don't know. It's just so funny. It's great. It's perfect. I would not change a single thing about it. Um, you yep. got another one yep. for me?
1: Um, yeah. Um, I have the uh, Theoden breaking down crying outside of Theodred's barrow uh, when it's not. Sorry. I'll give the light and then I'll get it uh He says, no parent should ever have to bury their child, and then cries, and there's that beautiful sunset behind him and all the landscape, and it's just fucking fantastic. I cry every time. And there is so much discourse online about this line. Um, <laughs> I had not processed it, I think, until I was doing some research for the episode people are mad as hell about that line. They're like, this is not talk any of it. I'm like, really? That, that's the line? That's the line that sets you off, not all of the other ones? Um, people get mad about it. I think they're fools to be mad about it because I think it's such a brilliant line and I think it is. it, it, it lends this human element to the much-needed human element to so much of these films um, and, and reminds us that, that like when we see all of these people dying, that there is an actual very real cost and even if they are just like, you know, basically the Lord of the Rings equ- equivalents of red shirts getting murdered on site like there is someone who is weeping for them um and and someone who's who may see the fact of their death as as their fault as their mistake um and 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 that is i think a beautiful sentiment to, to 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 really show off showcase right before you go into a massive
0: massive battle and lastly uh favorite musical piece what do you got (laughs) <laughs> the host
1: of the Eldar. Um, so I'm gonna I'm doing this because I feel like I've already talked ad nauseum about how much I love the like Rohan strings. But like the host of the Eldar is the music that they're playing as the Elves march up to the Hornberg. Mm-hmm. Um I could really take or leave the presence of the elves at that, but like the music is so stately and like um not not like fully exotic it just doesn't sound like music you would hear ever it's it's definitely not like taps it's not like army prom or like battle proms music it it, it sounds like that but it's just not it's just slightly off it's slightly miscalibrated and that is so perfect for the elves and i and it's one of these things where like if I'm going back to the to read The Silmarillion or whatever um, and need kind of like mood music, it's the first thing I go to because it just encapsulates that strange heroism, arrogance, hubris of the elves and the sadness as well. Um, Howard George really put us all into, into this and then apparently no other movies again after that because the rest of his scores are ass. But but here I think he's really firing on, on all cylinders with that one.
0: Yeah, it is really funny how it's just like, he, he's got a pretty mediocre career and then there's just these three masterpieces in the middle of it. And a yeah. lot of that just <laughs> because I, I think even when he was working on other films before this, he was mentally working on Lord of the Rings. Like, if I ever get to score the Lord yeah. of the Rings, this is what I would do. It's just, I imagine he's just preoccupied yeah. with that while he was scoring like <laughs> movies like The Score, literally, uh, with Robert De Niro and Angela Bassett. But um,
1: I there. think...
0: Uh, <laughs> Again, like everything else that we've talked about in our favorite section, you know my top two are going to be Rohan and the nature theme from The Last March of the Ents. Um The last one I want to call out is actually Glamdring, which is the opening track of this movie. Um, that's when uh, Gandalf is fighting the Balrog as they fall through the depths of Moria. Um, specifically, that kind of like gregorian chant stuff that comes in near the end of it as the camera pulls out for that long shot of them falling into the waters at the bottom um it just like immediately hitting you with like excalibur level epicness of this movie like it took a little while for fellowship to build there even i guess it didn't really because you know you had the whole last alliance <laughs> in Mount Doom. but like like i said in like two <laughs> minutes you are already a- as big as the story could possibly feel. Um, and it only really gets yeah. bigger from there, but um, we've highlighted a lot of the other stuff. And a lot of that other stuff is uh, recurrent leitmotifs, whereas Glamdring mostly kind of stands alone, especially because once he comes back as Gandalf the White, um, he gets rebranded with the new opening, you know, entrance music or whatever. Uh, so uh, this is kind of like the last musical climax of Gandalf the Grey. Um, I think it's really dope and it's really a w- tone setter for the
1: movie. Yeah. Absolutely co-signed.
0: All right. Finally, we are going to talk about our favorite moments from the book, The Two Towers. And just to kind of play fair with the adaptation, we will skip mentioning Shilob or the voice of Saruman, um, specifically <laughs> just because those are things we will get to um, in uh, Return of the King. Um, I don't mean to undercut one of yours here, Emily, that I think you have, but... Um, not at all complaining about it. I just, I'm going to avoid talking about those oh, two.
1: <laughs> I realize, I realize exactly now what the one is. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, I think for me, uh, it's really the opening, like two to three chapters. I guess it would be really be like the second chapter through the fourth chapter. Um, it is the kind of the point of view bouncing between Mary and Pippin and Aragorn and the three mm. hunters as like Aragorn's kind of trying to figure out What exactly happened here? And then uh, kind of flipping over to Merry and Pippin and then seeing their actual escape. Um, And then uh, that all eventually leads to Treebeard and stuff. But I really like the point of view switching and the way Tolkien kind of like, primes you to think, okay, is this what happened to them? Is this what happened to them? You really got to see Aragorn's mind working, and he's like, well, clearly, Peregrine ran over here, so he could do this really quick off to the side before being, you know, forced back into the column by the Urukai." Um, it's just really well-written, very detail-oriented, and it all really pays off really nicely. Um, so that is probably nice. my favorite part of the Two Towers book that was adapted for this movie specifically.
1: Nice. Um, yeah, I have opinions on of this book. Of course you do. <laughs> uh, to the surprise of no one. Uh, I love this book. I think this one, I go back and forth about whether or not *Richard of the King is actually my favorite. I always say it is. I'm not sure it is. Um, I think Two T- The Two Towers is because there are so many small moments that just, like, I find absolutely breathtaking. Um... Like, I mean, the things, the chapters I'm going to say that are my favorite, like, nobody will be surprised by it, but, like, I think it's, so, like, Window on the West, right? Window on the West is just a knockdown, down drag-out, perfect chapter. Um, I I have spent so much of my life reading it and rereading it and annotating it to hell and thinking about every single word, and it never feels old or stale to me, but the, the moment that I love the best in it is um, Frodo basically falling asleep on his feet because he's just had a fucking horrendous day, and he, like starts to fall and baromir like kicks like picks him up um and and like drops him in a bed and not drops him like puts him in it puts him to bed and and it is this like moment of just like abject kindness um and like um a, a realization like or not a realization but a recognition that like there is something that is gravely missing in the world of war and the world of like sorrow and bitterness that that the both of them are inhabiting in in their various ways and that like the true antidote to that besides winning the war is is, is um care it is caring for for others and and um and and going out of your way to sort of not um align yourself to like messy sort of um rules of civility like oh I'm not gonna touch that dude because that would be faggotry or whatever like picking up a guy when he needs help and I always think it's just one of these lovely lovely moments um breathtakingly sort of sweet um even though I dunk on it a lot on online as like ridiculous behavior right? it isn't it's lovely um and then the other one is, is uh, the one that always makes me cry whenever I read it, which is in the King of the Golden Hall, Hama naming Eowyn um as um as as effectively um, king to the Rohirrim, um, and and being the first to recognize that Aowen's contribution um, and Aowen's presence and 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 force of being is so much greater than the men around her have allowed it to be, and that she is someone who is truly caged, um, not by something immovable, not by something inevitable, but by the fucking horrendous choices of people who should love her but obviously don't. Um, and and it is a it's a stunner of a moment for so many reasons, but I think for the sheer recognition of her autonomy um and and her uh, recognition of her existence as more than just a woman on the edges of it all um and i think it's it is um you know though the book uh, the books are not um feminist manifestos and certainly i wouldn't call that moment feminist i think it is a better it, it, as written in the book it is a better moment for women um, in fiction than I have seen in anything, um, uh, in terms of movies or in, in terms of quite a few books, like mainstream books. And for the last 10 to 15 years, I think it, it really just stands head and shoulders above everything else. Um, and it just always, always makes me cry like a baby whenever I see it. Um, and yeah, and uh,
0: nothing, nothing comes close to that one, really. Yeah, no, that was a great one. I remember we read that scene, uh, I think, when we were doing our Justice for Hama prop, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Maybe 10 or so episodes ago in our Two Towers coverage. Um, Hama, the, you know, Tolkien's prominent male feminist. Uh, so we, we really, <laughs> we really love Hama uh, here on the show. So... Uh, I think that's it. Uh, Emily, I did not prep a list of patrons for today, so do you want to just read off all our $10 and $5 patrons and give everyone a nice little shout at the end of our Two Towers coverage?
1: We would like to thank the following
0: $10 patrons.
1: Patrons, (laughs) Matthew Abbott, aka Aranmo
0: Minyatar. Maddie Hugh, aka Idranor of Kolkertad.
1: (laughs) And Revelator, aka Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirithungal.
0: Lothamana Palinke, a.k.a. Johnny Flores Jr. <laughs> Sal Quendil, a.k.a. Cam Lewis. Laquimelme, a.k.a. Zach Newman. <laughs> Toko Tanar, a.k.a. Jonathan Dahan. Ir- Iranian Taranen, a.k.a. Yep. Matthias Hansen. Ronessa, a.k.a. Nick Smith. And Panemel, a.k.a. Munjil. And for the five
1: dollar patrons, we would like to thank Sean Gallagher, aka the Rascal
0: of Rivendell, Elise, aka Elenoma of Vinhatale,
1: <laughs> Scott Rothman, aka Rabo of the Castle and Deal,
0: Faroen aka Zoe, Lenny Not Dead, aka Rosanar of Arenar, Maddie K. Ray, aka Elasterial of Losillier, Nice
1: Tara Burnett, aka uh, El- Star Sorry, I, re- I just remembered the translation for that on the fly. Uh, <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> uh,
0: Connor Beaton, aka Mayoundil of Arusto.
1: <laughs> Ethan McDougall, aka Morthorion Razgon of Barithas. Evan,
0: aka Ananor of Glanaman.
1: Ariel Scotton, aka Reveliel of Erebost
0: Bronwyn, aka Bronwyn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Adonian O. Eddard Harris aka Stacey O'Deal Robinson.
0: And a quick shout to Zach Moser, Kayla, Dave Skolar, and Steve Niemeyer as well. Hell yeah and that closes the book on this episode of my brother my captain my podcast and also on this book the two towers kind of oh movie whatever <sighs> um anyways our email is my brother at gmail.com and my bro my cat my pod on twitter you can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my where you can get exclusive access to bonus content early access to all episodes and more I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nodacast ASOIAF.
1: And I've been Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter. Which is where I will be burying my gaze by swirling Gollum in the Dead Marshes.
0: Toasting a pint to our sound editor Stephen Boyd, aka Ethroglier and aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. How did it come to this? (laughs) It's the last time we're going to hear that one. Oh,
1: my God. It's so good. (laughs)
0: Looks like meat's back on the menu, menu. boys. (laughs)